The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. And I would invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. This morning we'll give attention to verses 23 through 26. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 23, Luke records this. And he said to all, that's Jesus, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That is the word of the Lord for us this morning. It's quite a bit of a text. I'm not sure that we'll be able to capture the whole of it this morning, but we'll do our best. This is a familiar text, and as I began to, to work with this text early on, I, I, I thought to myself, well, this is familiar. People, are, people know this text, and I know this text, and, and uh, it, it, this, this ought to flow pretty, pretty nicely and evenly. Uh, but as I started working through it, I realized that it's a little more challenging than what I thought, and there's a lot more here than maybe what we see on the surface. So I want to give attention to it this morning well, and perhaps we'll carry over into next week. Uh, but I'm going to make an attempt this morning to, to move through the end of verse 26. So if you'll buckle up and stay with me, we'll try to get there together. As we begin to look at this text, I, as I began to think about it this week, I, I, I thought about the reality that people in our culture are very, very confused <clears throat> about what it means to be a Christian. Very confused about what it means to be a Christian. There are reasons why the culture around us is confused about what it means to be a Christian. They're confused because the broader culture caricatures Christianity in general and sends all sorts of mixed messages about what a Christian really is. The culture around us is confused about what it means to be a Christian because the church often sends a very confusing message about what it means to be a Christian as well. The culture caricatures Christianity in a number of ways that will often just sort of associate Christianity and Christians with the political right and just treat Christians as some other political subset of the broader culture, just a a political group that has political ambitions and desires. It'll, It'll present Christians in popular media as people who are just trying to control public behavior, people who are busybodies who want to get in everybody else's life and tell everybody else what to do. It caricatures Christians as condemning people, people known for what they're against more than what they're for. It caricatures Christians as hypocrites who say one thing and do another. 
sadly Christians often add plenty of fuel to that fire by their own lives and behaviors the culture will caricature Christians as a bunch of bigots. We're just Christians are just bigots. They're not they're people who just can't get on board with the LGBTQ and whatever other letters are involved there agenda. People who just can't get on board with with abortion at will. People who in general are just racist who can't who can't seem to get on board with everybody on the rest of the culture is on board with. Christians are just a bunch of science deniers. People who deny science, who refuse to bow at the altar of what science teaches us at any given moment, who cling to some ancient book instead. And many other ways. People are confused because this is what they hear from the culture. If they don't go to church, if they don't know Christians, if they've never had anybody display anything other than that different to them, that's what they think Christians are because that's what the culture tells them that we are. But the church hasn't been any more clear about it in the message we send. If you were to uh, survey 50 different churches this morning or 50 different church websites, you'd probably find 60 different explanations for what a Christian is. What is it that it takes to become a Christian? Well, you would listen to some Christians and they would say, well, it's just a quick and easy belief sort of a thing. In some sort of non-specific way, you just believe in Jesus and you're a Christian. That's what it is. Somebody who believes in Jesus. Somebody who's prayed a prayer that's particular or who's signed a particular card or who has raised their hand at some sort of an invitation. Somebody who's been baptized or gone through some other religious ritual. That's what a Christian is. If you listen to other Christian teachers in the broader culture from within the church, you'll hear what's known as the prosperity gospel. And out of that sort of slice of evangelicalism, you'll hear the idea that, that, that a Christian, uh, uh, that if you want to be a Christian, that, that the way you do that is you come to Jesus. And the reason you should do that is because if you come to him, he's going to make you healthy and he's going to make you prosperous. And he's going to sort of give you all the desires of your heart. If you're faithful to him, He'll make you healthy and wealthy and prosperous. Christians are people who come to Jesus in order to get their own desires fulfilled in this world. If you listen to others, you'll hear some sort of a, a gospel of Christian works. A Christian is simply somebody who stops doing bad things and starts doing good things. They, they stop cussing and drinking and smoking and dating people who do. And they start doing good things like going to church and reading the Bible. Doing good works, helping people. That's what a Christian is. It's people who stop doing bad things, start doing good things. Other voices say that they really, well, the Christian is a person who, who gets involved in all sorts of community activism. Being a Christian is about supporting a cause or supporting a, a, par, a party or a movement. Taking a particular stand on an issue. None of those are true gospels. None of those describe actually what a Christian really is. And yet those are the messages that come out of modern Christianity. And there are many others. So it's no surprise then that your neighbors and my neighbors are absolutely confused about what it means to be a Christian and have no idea how to become one. Well, there's no reason to be confused if you read Luke chapter 9 because here in the text that we have before us this morning we have for us very clear language Christianity defined by Christ 
If you want to know what it is to be a Christian, all you need is the text in front of us. And it's not Christianity defined by the modern church. It's not Christianity defined by the culture. It's Christianity defined by the center of Christianity, Jesus Christ. Out of his very own lips, he defines what it means to be a Christian. And he could not be more clear. But what he says couldn't be further from what most people think. What he says is hard to hear, and it's harder to accept. Yet it's the only way to become a follower of Christ. It is the only definition of Christianity that matters. It's the only one that's true. And there is no plan B. There is no alternative. There is no easier way. It's, it's what he says here or it's nothing. It's that clear cut. Now, if we were to survey the teaching of Christ on this subject, we will do that this morning due to our, our time constraints, but you would find, and you can do this on your own, that Jesus, when he speaks about, about life and the decisions we make in life in regards to following after him, he, he consistently and regularly only sets forth two options. He tells us in one place there's a, a wide road and there's a narrow road, and you choose one or the other. One leads to life, one leads to destruction. There isn't a third road. He tells us that in the end, when when he returns, he's going to separate people. There's going to be two groups. There's going to be the sheep and there's going to be the goats. There's no other option. There's two roads, two paths, two groups. He says on another occasion to a crowd of people who are listening, listen, you're either for me or you're against me. There's no third way. You're for me or you're against me. You choose one or the other. And in keeping with that pattern here, Jesus presents two ways to live in this text. One way to live defines genuine Christianity. The other way defines lostness, and in this case, a particular kind of lostness that often masquerades as true Christianity. And that is what he sets out to explain to us this morning in this text. The broader context, if you've been following us in Luke chapter 9, is he's, he's just done some remarkable things, a, a remarkable miracle, uh, multiplying a, a few loaves of bread and some fish to feed thousands of people in this marvelous, miraculous way. That is on top of a, a number of other miracles that he's done, and, and he's gathered a large crowd. People have come from all over the place to follow after him, and they're clamoring for him for a number of reasons. And Jesus here wants to make very, very clear what it means to be a true follower of him. What it means to be a Christian. What it means to be his disciple. And so Luke writes this, Jesus said, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It could be more clear. What is a Christian... A Christian is a person who denies himself, takes up his cross, and follows Christ. In the most basic sense, what a Christian is, is a follower of Jesus. A disciple, that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's what a Christian is. It's someone who follows him. It's someone who is his disciple. And he says here, if anyone wants to be that person, if anyone wants to come after me and be my disciple and be my follower... Here's what you do. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. 
The crowds have been following him. They've been following for all sorts of mixed motives. For most of the people in the crowd, their motives were completely selfish. They wanted something from Jesus. They needed something, and they saw him as the dispenser of miracles. Many who were not looking for something for themselves were just curiosity seekers who, who heard about the show that was in town, and they wanted to see what was going on. But they weren't truly interested in being followers. However, within that broader group, there was a smaller subset of people who, whose eyes were being opened to who Jesus was and who were truly desirous of knowing him and walking with him and following him. And it's to both groups that Jesus speaks here because he wants to cut the line very precisely so people know where they stand. And so he says, if anyone wants to come after me, that word anyone sort of establishes the scope of the statement, the definition here. This is not just an instruction for a, a few special people. This is an instruction that applies to anybody, anywhere, at any time, in any place. If anyone wants to follow after me, he says, any person, any place, any time in history, if any person wants to follow after me, here are the criteria. This isn't just a, a call uh, to some sort of a higher level of discipleship that I'm giving to a few people within the Christian community. This is a baseline for what it means to follow me anywhere, for anyone, at any place, at any time. There is one way, and it's the same for everyone. And he uses three verbs here sort of to describe becoming his followers. Now, they're not completely separate things. I think sometimes when we read this, we want to think, well, there's three criteria here. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow Christ, as though these are three separate things. Um, I, I want you to not think of them as three separate things. They're actually related things that in many ways overlap with one another. We may even see it as one thing that builds as he moves it along. These are not sequential steps. Now I want to note up to this point, when Jesus has talked about becoming his follower, the language that we've seen, and Luke has highlighted, has been the language of repentance and faith. We've seen those words, repentance and faith, along and along. If you want to follow Jesus, you repent of your sin, and you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to ask the question, when we come to this text, is Jesus saying to us here that there are three additional steps apart from repentance and faith? that you need to repent and place your faith in Christ, and then on top of that, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Are these three additional steps? Some teach it that way. And I would suggest to you that is not the way to approach this text. These are better understood as a really a more specific explanation of what it actually means to repent and place your faith in Christ. It's Jesus sort of fleshing out the same thing in a different sort of a way. So he says, if you want to follow after me, here's what you do. You deny yourself. This word deny here in the text is a word that by definition simply means to repudiate or to disown. To repudiate or to disown. It's to, to disregard, to pay no attention to, to say no to. And so the, the entry point to the kingdom of God, the entry point into following Christ and being his disciple, it begins with a denial of self. It begins with a repudiation of myself and my own selfish ways. It begins with me saying no to me and saying yes to Christ. It's to renounce my life of self-centeredness. It's to, to make a clean break with sort of my self-oriented way of living my life. 
It's to disregard my own agenda and to begin to follow his agenda. It's to stop living for myself and to start living for Christ. It's to stop living as though the whole world revolved around me. It's to stop living as though everyone else exists solely to please me. It's to deny myself. Every one of us comes into the world living that way. We come into the world thinking of ourselves as the center of the universe, as the most important people that there are on the planet. And everyone and everything else exists to please us. And much of our life is spent pursuing our own self-pleasure and manipulating other people to do what we want in order to please ourselves. That's how we come into the world. That's how we live apart from Christ. And Jesus says, if you want to follow after me, that has to end. It starts with you denying yourself, repudiating yourself, disowning yourself, starting to say no to yourself and saying yes to me. And there's really two parts to this self-denial. There's this initial sort of self-denial. And upon hearing the gospel and upon recognizing, upon recognizing my own sin and my own guilt, and my own condemnation that comes from my sin, recognizing that I, I repent and I turn from my sinful and selfish way of living and I turn toward Christ. I repudiate, I disown the way I've lived up to this point in my life and I turn toward Christ and I set out on a different path. I make a clean break with my own lifestyle, my old lifestyle. I turn toward Christ. There's this initial sort of denying myself. That's really another way of saying repent. But then beyond that, there's an ongoing self-denial that marks a genuine believer. And it's a daily part of our sanctification. I, am, I not only, at the beginning of my walk with Christ, repudiate my old life and turn from it and turn toward Christ, but literally every day that I wake up, it becomes a, a practice of denying myself because there is a, an old rotten flesh in which I live that is constantly rearing itself up. It is constantly telling me that I'm the most important thing in the world and I should live for myself today. And so every day when I wake up as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as a disciple of Christ, it is a battle against that flesh. And it is a practice of denying myself. It's regularly doing what Paul instructs the Corinthian, I mean the Ephesian church in, in Ephesians, chapter, Ephesians chapter 4 when he says you're to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life. It says to the Colossian church, put to death what's earthly in you. It's another way of saying deny yourself. The Christian life is a life of self-denial. It is a life in which the attitude of John the Baptist becomes the attitude of our hearts. John said, if you read John chapter 3, verse 30, upon seeing Christ, he must increase and I must what? I must decrease. That is a right understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ. That's a right understanding of what it means to deny myself. It means that he has to increase and I have to decrease. Arthur Pink writes this. He said, growth in grace is growth downward. It's the forming of a lower estimate of ourselves. It's a deepening realization of our nothingness. It is a heartfelt recognition that we are not worthy of the least of God's mercies. 
So the beginning point for becoming a follower of Christ and being a Christian is we must deny ourselves. What's the opposite of self-denial? The opposite of self-denial is self-indulgence, right? It's not denying myself, it's living for myself. It's seeking to please myself above everything and everyone else. It's striving every day to get my way, to assert myself, to advance my agenda in the world around me. That's the opposite of self-denial, self-indulgence. And listen, friends, there is nothing more countercultural to the culture in which you and I live than this whole idea of self-denial. There's nothing more countercultural than self-denial. Self-indulgence is the major pursuit of the average American all around us. Self-indulgence is what's celebrated by the cultural elites in our society. Self-indulgence is what everybody is seeking. The idea that, 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 that people can and should spend their lives pursuing whatever pleases them without restraint is the prevailing pursuit of the people that you know. And the idea that people should be denied their pleasures is absolutely foreign. I mean, the culture tells us that we should be indulging in everything that we want. Every sexual indulgence should be pursued, not denied. Whatever fantasy somebody wants to believe is reality is to be indulged, not denied. The whole rationale, in fact, behind the, the whole abortion debate is an ex exaltation of self. Really. The whole rationale is this. I am the most important person in the world. And anything and anyone who gets in the way of my own self-indulgence has to be eliminated, even if it's my own child in my own womb. Because at the end of the day, I'm the one that's most important. And it's my indulgence that matters. The idea that people should deny themselves and the idea that, that people should be denied in general their indulgent fantasies is foreign, but the idea that they should deny themselves is even more foreign. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to stop pursuing my own pleasures? Why would I want to stop pursuing the things that please me? It's a foreign concept in the world in which we live, but Jesus makes crystal clear here that entrance into his kingdom begins with self-denial. Being a Christian is not just merely believing a set of facts about Jesus. It's not simply adding religious activity to our already busy lives. It's not about adding Jesus on Sundays and, and then going about the rest of our week with our own selfish pursuits. It is making a clean break with the old self-centered, self-indulgent life that we lived. And it's every day going to battle against my selfish nature and saying today I'm going to say no to myself and I'm going to say yes to Christ J.C. Ryle writes this he said a crucified savior will never be content to have a self-pleasing self-indulging worldly minded people no self-denial no real grace no cross no crown what is a Christian? A Christian is a person who doesn't live for himself, but he lives for Christ. What would it look like for you 
What would it look like for me to live that way? What would it look like for us to, to deny ourselves and to say no to things in our life that we want? Does it look like saying no to sinful attitudes and sinful activities that our lost friends indulge in? Is that self-denial? Is it denying ourselves to, to say no to ungodly relationships that we would otherwise desire to pursue, but we say no because it doesn't please Christ? Is that self-denial? I think it is. What does it look like to deny myself? Does it, does it look like, uh, does it look like uh, denying and saying no to self-indulgent purchases of things that I would like to have in order to support the cause of Christ? Is that a form of denying myself? Does it look like saying no to enjoyable activities that, 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 that are a waste of time in order to invest my time and energy in the work of the kingdom? Is that what self-denial might look like? It looked like a thousand things. But at the bottom of it, Christ is king and I'm not. You know, if you want a good diagnostic for yourself in this area of denying self, ask yourself the question, how do I respond when I don't get my way? How do I respond when I don't get my way? When God interrupts my plans, when God takes away something from my life that I love, when God says no to something that I desperately want, how do I respond? Do I get angry? Do I lash out? Do I pout and whine? Do I seek sympathy from everybody around me? Or do I look to Christ? Do I trust in his sovereignty? Do I serve him joyfully? Do I continue to live for him, recognizing that he's on the throne and I'm not? It's a good diagnostic. Being a Christian begins with denying myself. And he builds on that. He says, not only that, but a Christian is a person who takes up his cross daily. Deny myself, take up your cross daily. What is this all about? Well, it's harder for us because we're far removed from the culture in which Jesus lived. But everybody that would have been listening on the day when Jesus said these words would have immediately known exactly what he was talking about. They would have immediately been familiar with this metaphor. They knew exactly what it meant for a person to take up his or her cross. The image of somebody taking up their cross was the image of somebody marching to their death. And it was a common sight. That image was ingrained in their experience in all sorts of awful and gruesome ways. The cross was a vivid symbol of Roman torture and death. That's what it meant to the people in Jesus' day. It was a method of execution that was reserved for Rome's worst enemies. It was, a, it was a, a specific kind of execution that was designed to be the most painful, protracted, and public, humiliating way for somebody to die, it was to be crucified. And it was designed that way to be a deterrent to anybody who would defy Rome. In the century prior to the life of Jesus, Rome had crucified thousands of people, thousands and thousands of people. In just one instance, in 71 BC, there was a Roman general by the name of, of Cassus, or excuse me, Crassus, and he, in the midst of a, a battle, defeated a slave rebel by the name of Spartacus. You don't have to know any of these people, but here's what you need to know. When the battle was over, Spartacus was crucified along with 6,000 of his followers, and they were lined up along the street. 
that people would travel. People understood what crucifixion was. They saw a bunch of bleeding, suffering, humiliated, dying people as they walked down the road quite frequently. It's estimated in the lifetime of Christ that there were some 30,000 people crucified. So when he said, you take up, to follow after me means to take up your cross. They knew exactly what he meant. Because every one of those people who was crucified was made to carry the crossbeam of their cross to the place of execution. So you saw some poor, pitiful soul walking down the street with Roman soldiers and a crossbeam on their back. You knew exactly where that person was going. They were marching to their death. They were on a one-way trip from which they would never return. They were going to die. And Jesus uses that metaphor for what it means to be his follower. He says, if you want to follow after me, you deny yourself and you take up your cross. What does he mean? Well, he means simply being willing to, willing to pay any price to follow him, even if that means death. It means casting your lot with Christ, whatever that means. Even if it means marching to your own death, that's what it means. You'll do it. It's a willingness to endure shame, to endure embarrassment, to endure rejection, to even endure death, if that's what the call is. To honor him and to follow him. This really isn't something different altogether from denying yourself. It's really sort of a step even beyond denying yourself. He's saying, on the one hand, if you want to follow after me, deny yourself. And then he says right after that, really, if you want to follow after me, you need to die to yourself. Following Christ is every morning taking up my cross, dying to myself, and pursuing him. And the more mature I am in my faith, the more selfless I ought to become. The less I ought to be concerned about my own way, and the more I ought to be concerned with his way. The less I ought to be concerned about my own agenda, and the more I ought to be concerned about his agenda. The more we walk with Christ, the more skilled we ought to become at dying to ourselves, if we're true believers. I ran across this quote a good while ago, and I've lost who the author is. But he writes this, suppose you've been neglected or unforgiven. You sting with the hurt of the insult from such an oversight but your heart is happy because you've been counted worthy to suffer for Christ. That's what dying to self is about. When your wishes are crossed and your advice disregarded and your opinions ridiculed and yet you refuse to let anger rise in your heart and try to defend yourself, you're practicing dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently stand face to face with folly and spiritual insensitivity and endure it as Jesus did, you've died to yourself. When you're content with any food or money or clothing or climate or society or solitude or interruption by the will of God, you've died to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or record your own good works or desire commendation from others, you're dying to yourself. 
Well, you can honestly rejoice with a brother who's prospered and had his needs met and never feel any envy even though your needs are greater and still unmet. You've practiced dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself and humbly admit he's right with no resentment or rebellion in your heart, you've died to yourself. That's a high bar, isn't it? Jesus doesn't set the bar low. He sets it high. Let me just set forth this challenge to you and leave it on your doorstep this morning. If you think of yourself as a mature Christian and you don't see in your life both a desire and an ability growing to deny yourself and die to yourself, you are not who you think you are. Because a Christian is defined by these terms. And if it isn't the reality of your life, it isn't reality. If you're still always having to get your way, if you still expect everyone else to please you and coddle you and indulge you, and if you think somebody out there still owes you something, you have yet to die to yourself and become a true follower of Christ. The idea here isn't that we do these things perfectly. The idea that we do these things actively. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Well, this follow me is a different thing. It speaks to the issue of obedience, and Luke has spoken to this multiple times in his gospel already. In fact, uh, he just told them where obedience is leading him, right? And back in verse 22, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. Pardon me for a minute, my microphone is driving me nuts. Just talk amongst yourselves, it's okay. So when Jesus speaks here of following him, what is he asking them to follow him to? Well, he's going to die. I'm about to just yell at you. Let's try this again. All right, let's try that. There we go. All right. So follow Christ. What does that mean? Well, follow him where? Follow him to his death. That's where he's going. That's what he told his disciples. Here's where I'm going. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to be raised again. If you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and come with me on that journey. That's where I'm going. It speaks to the whole idea of obedience. The true believer is someone who denies themselves, dies to themselves, and lives to follow after Christ wherever that leaves, whatever the cost might be. Luke, as I mentioned, has already addressed this. Back in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he said to, to his disciples, he says, listen, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I tell you to do? You remember that? You just nod your heads and it make me feel better that you remember Luke chapter 6, Right? Why do you call me your Lord? Why do you say you belong to me, but you don't obey me? That's an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. It isn't real. Those who belong to me obey me. They follow me. Even if it brings shame, even if it brings embarrassment, even if it's countercultural, they follow me, even if it means giving up their own lives. They obey. James Boyce writes this. He says, we live in a day when substantial part of the evangelical world wants a domesticated Jesus who blesses, satisfies, fills, thrills and strengthens his followers but does not insist on a cross 
But what we need is the genuine Jesus who demands that his followers die to self and actually follow him. Now, after hearing all this, somebody might say to Jesus, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to deny myself? Why would I want to take up a cross and die to my own desires and my own selfishness and my own self-indulgence? Why would I want to follow Christ if it might potentially lead me to death? Why would I want to do something like that? Why would I want to become a Christian if those are the terms? Well, he answers that in verses 24 and 25 by giving this sort of mysterious paradox. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul or himself? It's a very simple uh, paradox that, that seems confusing at first, but it is, isn't actually that confusing. The, the principle is simply this. The person who saves his life ends up losing it, and the person who loses his life ends up saving it. What is he talking about? Well, he's, he's using a play on words, and he's, he's contrasting how a person's attitude or, or their perspective toward the life here on earth compared to life in eternity. The person who lives for their life now, who lives a self-centered, self-indulgent life that seeks to get everything they can out of this world, is ultimately going to be the person who loses their eternal soul. But the person who denies himself, takes up their cross, sacrifices the self-indulgent pleasures of the world ends up finding eternal life. That's the principle. Whoever saves his life here and now ends up losing his life in eternity. Whoever loses his life here and now ends up saving it in eternity. If the words are tripping you up, here's a simple interpretive aid when you're looking at this text. The word life, the word self, and the word soul really are all referring to the same thing in the text. It's the inner you. It's the you that's you apart from your body. It's the thing that defines who you are on the inside as a person. It's your soul, the part of you that is consistent throughout your life and into eternity. The immaterial you. The person who saves his life here that Jesus is talking about. The person who tries to save his life is the same person who lives the self-indulgent life and refuses to deny himself. It's the same person who lives a life of self-preservation and refuses to take up her cross. It's a person whose life is driven by safety and security and anything that prolongs this life of self-pleasure and self-indulgence. That person might call themselves a Christian, but the real life that they live is a life that's pursuing their career or their hobbies or their entertainment or their pleasure or their ability to accumulate wealth or whatever other thing is dangled in front of their eyes that they find appealing. It's the person who's unwilling to risk anything for the cause of Christ. It's the person who's unwilling to suffer for his sake. If you went back to Luke 8, in the parable of the soils, it's the thorny soil person who may initially look like a true believer but that initial seed of faith is choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life a person can live that way a person can choose to try and save their life here but there's a cost to it and the cost is the person who tries to save his life like that ultimately loses Eternal life is lost and eternal death is gained. 
And the opposite is true as well. The person who loses his life for Jesus' sake will save his life. Those who deny themselves here, those who take up their cross here, those who follow Christ even to death here will find eternal life and salvation there. These are the people who realize the value of eternal life. That it's so valuable that any price you pay here is insignificant in comparison. It's so valuable, eternal life is, eternal life with Christ is so valuable that sacrificing anything and everything in this world is still a bargain. And Jesus illustrates it by giving a hypothetical question. He says this, what is a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now this is a great illustration. He's like, okay, you want to live for yourself? You want to live a self-indulgent, self-pleasing life? Is that the pursuit you really want to live? Okay, let's see, where does that road lead? What if there were no barriers to you living that way? What if you could get everything? What if you had, what if money was no object and you could have everything you ever wanted? What if there was no money that stood in the way? What if there were no barriers to your acquisition? What if there was absolutely no people in the way? What if there were no external forces to stop you and you could get every single thing you wanted? You could indulge in everything that you could ever want in this world. What would it look like if you could do that? It would look like gaining the whole world. It, everything being yours. It's all yours. That would be the height, right? That would be the height. That would be as far as you could go. There's nothing left that doesn't belong to you. What if you get there? What if you hypothetically could get there and there was nothing to stop you? You're wealthier than Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, whatever Saudi oil tycoon is up there today. All possessions, all power, all wealth, everything is yours. What would it profit you to have all that and to lose your soul? What if you could get it all? in exchange for your soul. Would it be worth it? Would it be a bargain? And Jesus is setting up a rhetorical question here. The answer is, what would it profit? It would profit nothing. You'd simply be rich for a temporary season and bankrupt for eternity. That's a terrible investment every time. If you could gain the whole world, it still wouldn't be worth costing you your soul. When you have some time, look at the book of Ecclesiastes. Listen to the words of Solomon, the son of David. At his time, the richest, wealthiest man in the world. And he talks about in Ecclesiastes his pursuit of everything that the world has to offer. And he says in Ecclesiastes that he pursued everything, wealth, power, money, everything that the world offers and dangles is something that's important and good. He took it further than you and I could ever take it. Every one of those things, pleasure, all of it. And at the end of every pursuit, you know what he says? He says, I got everything I ever wanted in this area, and I found that it was vanity. It was like chasing after the wind. That's a funny illustration, isn't it? Chasing after the wind. Imagine Aaron, who read scripture for us earlier after church, out in the parking lot, running around doing this number here. And he said, Aaron, what are you doing? And he said, I'm chasing the wind. I almost got it. You'd say, Aaron, you're a lunatic, right? You can't catch the wind. You can chase it all day, but you never get it. 
That's what Solomon says. Everything the world has to offer, you can chase it all day long, but it never delivers on what it promises. You always come up empty. Listen, my friends, Jesus is making a case here. You can gain the whole world and lose your soul. You know what happens to you when you die? Philip Johnston wrote this, and I thought it was really helpful. He says this. Here's what happens when you die. When you die, don't worry about your body. Your relatives and the funeral staff will take care of it. I know this firsthand. He says, I've done it myself. They'll take you out of the house, and they'll deliver you to the funeral home of your family's choice. They'll take off your clothes. They'll wash you. They'll dress you up. They'll even apply makeup to make you look presentable. Many will come to the funeral to honor you. Some will even cancel their plans or ask for leave just to go to your funeral. Your things, all those things that you hated for people to borrow, they'll be sold, they'll be donated, or they'll be burned. Your keys, your tools, your books, your CDs, your DVDs, your games, your collections, your clothes, everything. And be sure the world won't stop and cry for you. The economy will continue. You'll be replaced at your work. Someone with the same or even better ability will take your place. Your property will switch to your heirs. And don't doubt the small and big things that you've done in your life will be spoken of, judged, doubted, and criticized by everyone else. Your good friends, they'll, they'll cry for a few hours or several days. But then they'll laugh again. Your pets, they'll get used to a new owner. Your pictures will, will be hanging on the wall for a while, then they'll be put down on the furniture, and finally they'll be stored at the bottom of a box. Someone else will sit on your couch and eat from it. A deep pain in your home will last a year, two, maybe ten. But then you'll join the memories, and your story will end. It will end among people. It'll end here. It'll end in this world. Well, your story begins in a new reality in your life after death. The things you once had will lose their meaning. The beauty of your body, your last name, your property, your loans, your position at work, your bank account, your house, your car, your academic titles, your trophies, your friends of the world, your kids, your family, all of that, completely different meaning. In your new life, the only thing that matters is your soul. It's the only property that will last beyond this world. You can live for the world, and you can try to save your life and live a self-indulgent life, but in the end, you'll be a loser because it will all go away. And the only thing that extends beyond your death is your soul. If you want to be a Christian, you deny yourself. You take up your cross and you follow after Christ. That's the only way to enter the kingdom of God. That's the only way to eternal life. There is no other gospel other than this. Jesus Christ died. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. And he calls everybody to deny themselves, die a similar death, and follow after him. That is the only gospel. There is no other way to be a Christian. So the question for you and for me this morning is this, have we done that? Have we died to ourselves? We 
taken up our cross and are we following after him? Search your heart this morning, friends. There is no other way. You're either on that track or you're headed to an eternity apart from him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you speak to us hard words here. These words are, are hard for us to understand in a sense because we don't want to understand them. We want an easy pathway. We want an easy way. We want to be able to live for you and live for ourselves. We want to honor you but still hold on to the things of this world. We want to do your will, but we still want to do our will too. We want to, we, we, we're comfortable adding Christian things into our lives, but it's hard for us to take up a cross and die to our own self and to live for you. But that's the doorway into your kingdom from your own lips. And so I pray for my friends here this morning who gathered, Lord, as they look at their own lives, I pray that you'd help them to see, has that been the reality of their life? Has there been a time when they renounced their old life of selfish self-indulgence and turned toward you? Are they waking up every morning denying themselves and living for you? Is that the trajectory in pursuit of their lives? the answer is no, Lord, I pray that you'd help them to see the reality. They don't belong to you. And they need to make that commitment today. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see you for who you are and see the value of eternal life and be willing to renounce everything that comes along with this world in order to gain you. I pray it in your holy name. Amen.